Let me start today's sermon with a true story. It's going to relate to our passage and our theme today. Um, let me relay the story of Elizabeth to you. Elizabeth uh, lived an epic kingdom adventure despite her own personal flaws and the hardship she faced. Elizabeth was born in 1926. When she was nine years old, her best friend died. And as a young girl, a missionary she knew was actually beheaded by Chinese communists. And these were foreshadows of her life. As a young adult, she married her true love, Jim Elliot. And they were head over hills for each other, and it seemed like a true romance. And they felt called to missionary work in Ecuador. Initially, they were reaching a particular tribe, but in reaching this one tribe, they discovered that there was a more remote and hidden tribe, much deeper in the jungle, who were completely unreached with the gospel. The uh, Waldani tribe were very primitive. They had a 70% homicide rate. They dealt with conflict by spearing each other. Her husband, Elizabeth's husband, and four other men went ahead to try to make first contact with the Udanis. Elizabeth wrote in her journal how her and Jim had felt distant from each other in the months leading up to this outreach, and she missed her husband dearly. The men initially had a good reception from the tribe. They spent a whole day. A few of them emerged from the jungle, and they spent a whole day with them. One of the tribe's people ate a burger. Another one of them tried the insect repellent. And then an older woman of the tribe actually slept by their fire all night long. And so things seemed to be going very well. A few days later, Jim radioed that they could see a group of this tribe approaching, and they were filled with excitement, believing for continued positive contact. But then there was radio silence. Five days passed. The wives and other missionaries praying and hoping. Jim and Elizabeth had only been married for three years. They had a 10-month-old daughter. Tragically, all five men's bodies were discovered, still with the spears in them. They'd been brutally killed, only identifiable by their wedding rings, their watches, and their tattered clothes. Elizabeth was 28 years old, and now a widow and a single mother. Of course, dealing with this tragedy was extremely hard. But she ultimately found herself praying this prayer. She prayed, Lord, if you want me to do anything with the people of this tribe, I'm available. In the most surprising turn of events, God called her to try to reach that tribe. And the very people who had killed her husband... Two years after this, after her husband's death, with her young daughter strapped to her back, she went into the depths of the jungle with a guide. She didn't know the language, and there was real danger. What would become of Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter? Let me pause the story there on a major cliffhanger. I'll give you the conclusion at the end of the sermon, so you have to stick around. 
And uh, this story relates to, as I said, relates to our passages and our focus for today. So this is the final week of our series, uh, Being the Church. This has been an 11-week series. And uh, today we're looking at the call of kingdom adventure. The call of kingdom adventure. And I want to, today I want to inspire everyone to understand and to value the call to kingdom leadership. And for many to take a step along the leader's journey... And in particular, I want to explore the call of eldership. In each generation, God raises up key figures to redeem broken parts of our world. Some people fill really big roles, and some people fill very small roles. But this is the inescapable work of God. To be like Christ is, of course, to be humble and obedient. But it's also to be courageous and uncompromising not just to support and maintain, but also to create and develop. Of course, not everyone is suitable or able or ready to take on an official leadership role, but everybody can journey, take that st- those steps along the leader's journey and learn to think and operate and bear the responsibility that leaders bear. The Bible is full of people who were truly disqualified yet did great things for God. We've got this list here. We'll go through this list. Adam was passive, yet started the human race. Kind of a big deal. Noah got drunk after saving the world. Abraham lied, yet became the father of a nation. Jacob manipulated, yet became a patriarch. Joseph was self-aggrandizing, yet saved many lives. Moses couldn't speak well, yet redeemed the Hebrews. Aaron worshipped a golden calf, yet was the first priest. Ruth was destitute, yet joined Jesus' lineage. There's a couple of names I missed on here. We could add Rahab to it. We could add Jonah to it. Jonah was, well, Rahab was a prostitute, and uh, God used her. And then Jonah was, you know, a little bit of a racist. God used him. Um, Gideon hid. He was a coward, yet God called him into a battle. Elijah was afraid, yet he overcame the prophets of Baal. David was the youngest, yet became king. Hezekiah was proud, yet restored the nation. Esther was an orphan, yet became a queen who saved Israel. Isaiah had unclean lips, yet became a prophet. Jeremiah was a crier. Any criers in the room? Yet God sent him to Judah. Daniel was in exile, yet influenced a nation. The disciples were arrogant, yet Jesus chose them. The Samaritan woman was sinful, yet she spread the gospel. Matthew was a tax collector, yet became a gospel author. Simon was a terrorist, yet he was counted amongst the twelve. Martha was stressed, yet hosted Jesus. Peter was compulsive, yet led 3,000 people to Jesus. Paul was intense, also persecuted Christians and oversaw the death of Christians. <laughs> Slightly worse than being intense. But he was a very intense person, yet he wrote large portions of the New Testament. Barnabas had an argument, yet produced a lot of ministry fruit. Apollos needed correction, yet was a gifted teacher. Timothy was young, yet Paul sent him to oversee churches. James was late to the game, yet became an apostle. God has a habit of choosing unexpected inexperienced and flawed, reluctant people. And this is amazing because it allows God to get all the glory. You really can't boast if you're on God's team. Feeling unqualified 
to do something great for God is a good sign because it means that we're just like the saints of old. Let us not think that we're wiser than God, or we know better than God, or that our failings are greater than God's power and God's plan. To lead is to love people enough to take responsibility for their growth. Let me say that again. To lead is to love people enough to take responsibility for their growth. Jesus called 12 immature and embarrassing followers. I mean, sometimes they were just the worst. Yet they later became his primary leaders who turned the world upside down. Leadership is not about having a position of influence. It's about having a heart of influence, specifically the desire to see others become all that they can become. There are two ways that we may receive a call to leadership. Two ways. Firstly, God can speak directly to us through our circumstances. That's uh, too far ahead. Take that down. You jump too far ahead. There's two ways. So firstly, God can speak directly to us, right? This can happen through our circumstances, maybe a dream, maybe an inner conviction. Sometimes uh, God uses discontentment with the way things are. We just get frustrated with our circumstances or frustrated with the world. And that wakes us up and causes us to raise up. Secondly, we may receive it through others. So the first way is we just get it, we just know it ourselves. Something's going on in us. The second way is that we receive it through others. And oftentimes people see something in us before we see it ourselves. And they call it out of us. Both avenues are equally valid. One is not better than the other. The key is to properly test them. Whether somebody sees it in us or we have a sense ourselves, we have to test both one, uh, both options. Excuse me. To decide if a leadership role is the right thing, there are four questions. I think these are the things that should come up. There are four things. So firstly, to decide if, if a leadership role is right for us, firstly, the question is, is our faith and character adequate enough for the level of responsibility? Perfection is impossible, but genuineness and trustworthiness do matter. Secondly, do we have enough unity? Is there trust and alignment of values? Do I have the same sense of things and beliefs and values for those who I will be leading and those who I'll be leading with? Thirdly, do others validate the call? Because mature voices who won't sugarcoat the truth can give us counsel about our suitability. And this is really important to uh, ask people, do you think I could do this? And um, I know that's helped me in, over the years is to, is to have other people say, Matt, I really think this is the right thing for you or this is not the right thing for you. Fourthly, is there fruit? Is there some fruit? Right? Whether that's internal or external, godly outcomes are a key signal of God's approval. And uh, typically we need to serve or lead for a bit before we can even test the results. So sometimes we just need to have a little bit of a trial run to say, how does it go? Do something simple, something small, and see what is the fruit. If God blesses it, that's a good sign. Now, let us not succumb to invalid reasons to avoid kingdom adventure and kingdom leadership. Doubts are not a valid reason. Everyone has doubts. That's just normal. If you have doubts, you're a normal human. Fear is not a valid reason. Everyone has fears. Anxiety is not a valid reason. 
God knows we all have anxiety. Inexperience is not a valid reason. There's no way to develop than to start, than to take the first steps. Criticism is not a valid reason. The world is full of critics. Our job is to prove them wrong. Availability is not a valid reason. Say, I don't have the time. I'm not available for it. That's not a valid reason. If God calls, that trumps everything else. We shift our responsibilities to match God's call and find the grace from God to bear the burden that he's called us to. Opposition is not a valid reason. Actually, resistance, if you try and do something for God and you get resistance, that can be a good sign. It can be a sign that God's testing me or the forces of darkness really don't want me to do this. The pathway of leadership in any, any opportunity or any environment, especially in church ministry, is to start with serving. We start with serving. Without taking on responsibility, it is impossible to grow. Let me say that again. Without taking on responsibility, it is impossible. You cannot grow without responsibility. Everyone, therefore, should serve. Everyone should have a place. Everyone should have a role. Serving teaches us faithfulness. It teaches us teamwork. It builds trust. And from the foundation of serving, many can step into an assistant role. Not everyone will, but some can. And some can do that very quickly. Others will need a lot more time to step into that. To be an assistant leader means we're directly supporting our leader by embracing some of their responsibilities. We say, well, I'll take on that and that and I'll do that. And if all goes well with those steps, then we eventually can try a leadership role of ourselves. And that means to recruit our own assistant. So if you're in a leadership role, your main job is to recruit an assistant. Practicing the ability to call someone into the adventure means we're well on our way to investing in the growth of others. The call to share leadership is a foundational principle throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, we actually learn of advice given to Moses to help him effectively share leadership. And this process to share leadership involves the, the test of faith, character qualifications, as well as a simple hierarchical structure. So in Exodus 18, we've got this verse here, verse 21. It says, Moreover, look for able men from, the, from all the people, men who fear God. So that's number one. What's your faith like? Who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Number two, what's your character like? And then, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands I almost read that as chefs, as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So we see, we see a simple hierarchical structure here for the people. And this principle continues in the New Testament as well. So it's not just Moses and, and the ancient Israelites. It's in the New Testament as well. John the Baptist called followers who are under him. Jesus called disciples as well who are under him. Peter was favored with Greater responsibility among the disciples. James and John were also in Jesus' inner circle. Judas had unique responsibilities over the finances. Didn't work out that great, but at least he was delegated some specific roles. Hey, look, everyone, everyone gets a responsibility, even Judas. Jesus had a special bond with John. They seemed to be particularly close. Paul and Peter were given oversight of different churches and regions. 
And Paul clearly had delegates under him. He had Timothy and Titus and Silvanus and others. So the call and the response and the structure, it's all undeniable, this pattern, this divine pattern in Scripture. Now, Jesus equips his church to foster an atmosphere of discipleship so that there's this desire to say, let's train up, let's call people into kingdom adventure. And as a result of that, churches will call people into these responsibilities. So there'll be asks for, hey, would you lead a small group? There'll be asks for, would you lead a serving team? There'll be asks for, and thank you to Jim for setting out the communion right now. He's serving as we're talking. I appreciate that. What a great live example of servant-heartedness and serving. There's, there's a call to, to small group leadership, to serving team leadership. There's a call into directorships of special ministries like kids' work or youth groups or men's and women's ministries or initiatives to serve those in need. There's all these different opportunities. Some are called into supporting or coaching roles to care for other leaders. And it is the desire of church leadership to inspire and equip the congregation to voluntarily accept these kinds of significant roles. Not for these roles to be forced on people, but for people to be inspired to say, I see why it's so important. Even if someone's not ready for it, they can see why it's so important. Thank you, Jim. That's, a, that's a, an important... We're going to take communion later on, so we need this, so this is good. I just love that he went straight across the platform there. <laughs> it's all right. Take the shortcut. <laughs> Finally, there is a call to join the appointed shepherds as well, those the Bible calls elders. And this call is only for a few, but it's important to explore. We don't explore this very often on a Sunday, but we will today. And as we journey through this series, Being the Church, 11 weeks on Being the Church, the significance of shepherding has been a constant refrain. It's something I've come back to time and time again, the importance of shepherding. Jesus calls overseers to care for his church because sheep need shepherds. Sheep need shepherds. Now, there's an important difference and distinction to be made here between being pastoral and being an appointed pastor. So being pastoral, like providing relational care or counsel, there's always going to be people in the church who are gifted and excel in those kind of skills, like discipleship or mentoring or even teaching. And that means somebody has that temperament to be pastoral, but that doesn't mean they're a called elder. It doesn't mean they're called to be in that official overseer position. So that's an important differentiation to make, that there are lots of shepherding gifts that are reflected in the, in the church congregation, but then there are those who are appointed to the office, appointed to the position. Now, within this subject, there is an important yet delicate theological question regarding the role of women in ministry. Now, this must be addressed with absolute clarity and care because Christians have divided and been upset about these things, and some of you may be upset about this today. Orthodox Christianity has upheld the giftedness of women, placing great honor upon all women and calling women into leadership roles, right? Because there are prominent women in the Bible who serve as an inspiration to all generations, to both men and women. We can clearly see that. Our story today is about Elizabeth Elliot, an amazing leader. Now, let me add this. This is where I might offend some people. I don't mean any offense, but stick around and slap me afterwards if you want. You're welcome to, to, to do that. 
Let us use our minds to govern our hearts in this moment. Let me say this. I think from an honest reading of Scripture, we can see that God does place specific boundaries around the appointed role of pastor. And that those boundaries, we'll look at them, we'll go in depth into this today. It restricts almost all men from the role, as well as all women, from holding this, the specific eldership position. Let me explain this. How can I say this? Well, the Bible makes it explicit when it describes the qualification for elders, but it also is implicit when it's, the Bible speaks of the concept of what's called headship. So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he's the one that gets in most trouble for this, but in the book of Corinthians and, of, and of the book of Ephesians, he talks about how God is the head of Christ. Okay, and This is a phrase that Paul uses. He's the head of Christ. So God the Father is the head of Christ. Then we're told that Christ is the head of the church. And that makes us the body. We're in the body position. Among other things, this means Jesus is responsible for the church's protection and provision. Scripture defines the term head by telling us uh, that Jesus is the head. We've got this verse here. I think it's Colossians 2. Scripture defines the term head by telling us that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. You can look up every single translation of the Bible and they will translate it that way. That's the meaning of what it means to be in a head position. And for churches, pastors are the household heads. If you fill in your taxes and you ask you, who's the head of household? You go, okay, who's the, the main person in charge of this household? For churches, it's the pastors, of course. Now, a very direct statement that ties the idea of headship to church leadership is spelled out in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. We've got this verse as well. For it says, uh, Paul writes this, he says, For if someone does uh, not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? So the Bible is saying that pastors must be mature heads in their homes to be eligible for their position in the church. And Jesus shows us that the role of headship is not about domineering control. It's about loving, heroic self-sacrifice. Having headship does not exclude the importance of partnership. Even in ministry, even though there are heads of household in ministry, hey, this, is, this church thing's still a partnership. There's got to be trust and goodwill towards each other, even though there's somebody with greater authority. C.S. Lewis, actually, the C.S. Lewis, the beloved author uh, and uh, Christian apologist, right? C.S. Lewis actually holds this exact view. So Trinity Church, we have the same view as C.S. Lewis. He believed in male eldership, he illustrates this, though. He comes up with this picture to help us illustrate this. And the picture he comes up with is a man and a, and a woman dancing together in a, in a traditional ballroom kind of dancing situation, right? And for the dance to work, one of the dancers has to take the lead. They have to play the head role. But both dancers agree to the dance. They're both in it together, willingly. But traditionally, in this role, the man sets the direction, what they both do looks very similar. You're watching them do it. It looks, like you know, it looks very similar. They're both dancing. And they work together in a partnership to practice and to select different music together. Yet in the dance, one is the head and the other is the body. And for this to be successful, there's got to be a lot of trust. And then the dancers who really understand this dynamic of headship and partnership together, they really enjoy it. And it looks good. Dances that, that don't respect this or honor this, it, the dancing is not so good. 
So that's where it's implicit. Now let's look at how it's explicit. It's spelled out. We're directly told over and over that elders are to be men. So in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Paul writes this. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now this is the qualifications for elders. I've taken out, I've truncated this, so I'm just, we're focusing on the who, not the what. So it says, he must be the husband of one wife. Only a man can be a husband. He must manage his children, his own household. How will he? He must not be. He may become. He must be so that he. And then again in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, it says the same thing. It says, appoint elders. And it says, they must be the, the husband of one wife, his children. He must not. He must hold firm so that he may be able. And Paul started off, that section there in Timothy is especially saying this is a trustworthy statement. The Bible is saying you, you can trust this. This isn't confusing. This isn't a mistake. This wasn't put in here by accident. This isn't something that can be changed. This is trustworthy. Now, it's such an important topic. If God had meant to reform it through the life of Jesus, he would have unequivocally spelled it out. He would have. It's such an important topic. He would have unequivocally in Scripture spelled it out. Instead of doing that, he reinforced it. What Paul directly spells out in his letters to Timothy and Titus, Jesus set by example in the Gospels. So the highest form of authority in the church is the headship of a man, the man Christ Jesus. So if we, we can't reject male eldership of the church because Jesus is the head elder of the church and he is a man. God the Father saw fit to set a man as the head shepherd of his flock. And Jesus, in turn, delegates his authority to male under-shepherds. This is the divine pattern. God the Father chose his son to be head shepherd. And Jesus turns around and does the same thing. This is a divine pattern. And even though Jesus absolutely defied the gender norms of his day, we know he did that. We know Jesus absolutely def defied those norms. He greatly involved women in his ministry. He elevated women in ways that other people of his generation did not. Even though he did that, he still intentionally chose 12 men to be his apostles. He could have chosen half. He could have just chosen one. But that's not the divine pattern. That's not the headship that he's going for in his church. Now, what about women who are already pastors? You may say, well, aren't there a bunch of women who are already pastors? Well, in God's grace, God uses all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. God used ancient Israel for generations even though they continually rejected his ways. Jesus graciously connected with the woman at the well who was living in sin, and he offered her eternal life. All right, Jesus tolerated his disciples when they lacked faith. And what we have to remember is this side of heaven, things are going to be messy. Right? Churches do all kinds of stuff that, that we shouldn't do. And we must remember that favor is not a sign of correctness, but a sign of grace. God can bless you, even if you step outside some of the lines that he's drawn at times. To have a heart for God is to have a heart for his ways and to strive for his ideals. So let us, let us be those who follow God's revelation and not our own thoughts and opinions or the opinions of our culture. To love Jesus is to love his words and to love his actions. And sometimes that means accepting things we don't like as much. Jesus said we should pay taxes. You like paying taxes? But he said, even, even we're supposed to pay taxes to an evil state. Do you like paying taxes to an evil state? Jesus said, we should forgive others, which sounds nice until you have to forgive someone. <laughs> right? 
which means even when we don't feel like forgiving, we have to forgive. Jesus rejected illegitimate excuses for divorce, which means we need to work on marriage rather than abandon marriage. There are legitimate reasons to get divorced. They are spelled out in Scripture. But, hey, some people abandon marriage too quickly. It's hard. I don't like the person anymore. I'm going to get out. Well, no, we don't, we don't like the fact that the Bible has such a strong fence around the covenant of marriage, but it's there for a reason. We need to try and work on it rather than just abandon it. Loving Jesus is about trust and obedience. And if we believe God is good, we can trust and obey him. Now, let me say, if you disagree with what I'm saying, you're welcome to be at Trinity Church. It's more important how we disagree about this. But just so you know, if you stick around, I'm going to try and convince you of what I believe the Bible teaches about this. In love, of course. Listen, if the Bible is not our final authority, we're in danger of adopting cultural views. If we abandon his historical teachings in one area, it actually opens us up, opens us up to the, the floodgates up to rejecting anything within the pages of Scripture. The most important reason to maintain the integrity of Scripture is to protect the very core message of Christianity, which is the free gift of Jesus' substitution for us on the cross. People don't connect the dots. But if you reject, if you open up, you relax theology in one area, there is nothing that you can't question within the pages of the Bible. So if I'll give you an example, actually, many churches today, oh, I get it, it is many, reject the idea of God's punishment on Jesus. They'll say, well, it sounds like divine child abuse. You know, God sending his son to die in our place, that's divine child abuse. They'll actually deny that what's called, it's a fancy theological term, penal substitutionary sacrifice, which just, just means the penalty. Penal means the penalty that Jesus, we, we deserve death, but Jesus took that penalty for us, that punishment for us. There are, there are churches that will say they don't like the idea of God's wrath, God being angry at sin, and they'll reject that. And so they'll, they'll reject the very core. Well, how do they get there? Well, every church that rejects the idea that, that Jesus paid the price for us, that he died in our place, also has rejected headship. And they've become, they've drifted off into all kinds of more progressive types of theology. Those things are directly connected and those churches are in decline. Depending on the context, Jesus occupies both the head and the body position. Jesus is the head of the church, but he's also the body of God. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that. So like Jesus, we all find ourselves in both positions in our lives, in different contexts. And Jesus modeled headship and bodyship with absolute perfection. So we should strive to be like Jesus. We should strive to be those. If I have some authority, I'm in a head role, how do I be like Jesus? If I'm in a body role, I'm under some kind of authority, how do I be like Jesus? We're in these dynamics throughout our lives. Now, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, we have a slide for this too, 1 Timothy 3, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It is a good thing for men to aspire to church eldership. If there are genuine signs of some kind of leadership like this in a man, why not consider a call to eldership? Consider it. Churches should proactively call men into eldership. And some men, if they show promise, they can be formally trained and tested. We've done this over the years with certain men. 
However, any man who senses this call should not wait to be asked. They should take the initiative themselves to say, hey, I'm interested in this. But since the call is so high and the expectations in the Bible are very rigorous, the pathway to eldering will likely be slow and bumpy. Because someone's character must be refined, trust must be built, skills must be developed. Ultimately, the call must be affirmed by others. There is essentially no other way to know unless you give it a try. Let me also very clearly say, churches must also proactively call women into leadership roles. And if you're a woman who aspires to leadership, there's room for you. There's tons of room for you. And if you feel like your call has not been recognized, we recognize many women in our church and their leadership giftings. And if you feel like you have a call and it's not been recognized, please voice your interest in that. Say, I want to be equipped. I want to be useful in that way. Let the shepherds get to know you and to understand you and to assess you and to, to include you in that way. But you're going to have to advocate for yourself if you've not been noticed. Like any leader, you have to work at building unity and trust because without unity and trust, leadership is impossible. And for men or women who sense any kind of call to leadership, whenever we're seeking to have greater influence over other people, let me tell you this, this is so important. We have to seek that in a respectful way. I've seen men or women to seek it in a more arrogant way, in a less respectful way. And that, I'm always nervous when people are very eager to be in charge. I prefer reluctant leaders. Respect is something that is reciprocated. If we, if we seek influence in a respectful way, we'll, refine, we'll find that respect is reciprocated. Now listen, God has put something special inside each one of us. And in Christ, God's call over you has been spoken. God has a call over you. And he wants to release you into greater ministry. Because who you truly are may be buried beneath layers of fear, lies, weaknesses, failures, or self-righteousness. But you're in there. There's something amazing in there that God wants to call out into this kingdom adventure today. God's Spirit is determined to break you free, to break you out. You've been called and created to glorify God. And the world has not seen what you're capable of. Whatever you're gifting, let it shine. Do not compare yourself to others. Do not resent the position of someone else. Explore and embrace the design God has given you. Thank God he placed you inside a Christian community. He wants you to develop your abilities to serve the flock. Your gifts are vital to support the mission of the church to reach the world. You are a sheep shepherd. You are a sheep shepherd. The adventure awaits you. Now, what became of Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was brutally speared to death along with four other men by the very tribe they were trying to reach? Well, the tribe... They were surprised that Elizabeth came to them in forgiveness instead of in revenge, because their culture was a culture of revenge. She lived amongst them with her daughter. She showed them the gospel, and she worked hard to communicate the grace of Jesus in their language. She showed them that there was one, Jesus Christ, who was speared for them instead of them. 
And as a result, many of the tribe gave up their spears and gave up their spearing ways, and they turned to Jesus. Elizabeth eventually returned to the States, and she published her story in the book Through the Gates of Splendor. And it has been described as one of the seminal Christian books of the 20th century. In total, she wrote 25 books, all different subjects and different things. Her story and writings captured the imagination of a generation. She became a prolific public speaker all over the world. She spoke 300 days a year, all while hosting an ongoing radio show. But her story does not end there. Her second husband, whom she also fell deeply in love with, slowly died of cancer. Her third marriage, which ended up being a bad situation, a controlling marriage, she said was the biggest mistake of her life. And she faced much public criticism over the years. Elizabeth was said by some to be a cold and rude person. She was a rebel who rejected many Christian traditions of her day. She aggravated conservatives and progressives alike. She mourned over her public failures. Her journals reveal that she privately dealt with wild and passionate emotions, struggling with deep loneliness. She was neurotic about her writing, suffering with great doubts about her own abilities, even though she was clearly successful. Even with enormous personal tragedy, enormous personal tragedy, and great personal weaknesses, she responded to the adventurous call of God. She became one of the most influential Christian figures in the past 100 years. And in the circle she moved, she was often the only female voice at the table. Yet she learned to hold her own. And she also, the biggest life lesson that she communicated over and over was that it is through suffering that God has profound lessons to teach us. One of the most remarkable things about Elizabeth Elliot was her love of Scripture. She had a keen intellect, very sharp mind. And even though she was a rebel who was thrust into the realm of Christian leadership, and even though she was a sought-after speaker, public speaker, and even though she had a powerful ministry of her own, she became an advocate for male headship within the church. She held to a firm biblical view of the roles of men and women. Elizabeth passed away in 2015. Her legacy has already had an immeasurable impact. She was an unlikely hero who did not enjoy being thought of as a hero. She did not choose her role. Her role chose her. And when we review the lives of those who have gone before us and what they faced, yet how God used them, let us never limit what God can do through us. God draws the boundaries. We need to let him draw the boundaries, not us. Let us allow God to use our rudeness and our coldness. Let, him, let us allow him to use our neuroticism and our loneliness and our doubts and our tragedies and our losses. Let us be willing to follow the adventure of God wherever it may lead us. Let us hear the call in spite of all the things against us 
the call to take responsibility for the growth of others. This is the adventure of God. If there's no adult in the room, then you must become the adult in the room. It's up to you. Jesus showed us this humble power. Jesus didn't take power for himself. Jesus used his position and his influence to fight for us. And he paid his, with his life on the cross. The Romans didn't just nail Jesus to the cross. They put a spear in his side. Jesus was speared for us in our place. And that's the greatest news. That's the gospel of grace. And if you don't know Jesus today, submit to him because he's the head of all things. And if you do know Jesus today, then submit to him because he's the head of all things and we can trust him completely. Lord, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you've called us to be your church. And I pray that for our church, that as you've taken us through this 11-week process, looking deeply at what it means to be your people and ending tonight on this kingdom adventure call. I pray that you would sow the seeds today to raise up many leaders, both men and women, to lead kingdom adventures, to no longer discount themselves, but to say, if no one else will, I'll raise my hand. Lord, do a deep work in us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to be those who are absolutely committed to your word, to your ways, knowing that we're not wiser than you. We're not wiser than you. We can't outsmart the God of the Bible. Fill us, Lord, and use us in your name I pray.